Good morning. Before we start, let's just pray. Lord, I thank you for our time together today. I thank you that you are here with us. I thank you that you've prepared us for the, the word today. And Lord, I just pray that you will speak what you would. In your name, amen. So to start, I wanted to review what we did last week. So one, uh, we talked about how the Bible blurs the line between spiritual and physical. And that expectation should come to be not a surprise because God doesn't expect to, commu- to know us purely through our minds, but through more. And so then we talked about metaphors, and we talked about how those metaphors are strange, just like the blurring of the physical and non-physical, which is, we'll just read the quote from Bible Project here, which says, rich images from biblical poetry are rooted in images from early biblical narratives. That is how metaphor works in the Bible. You need the narratives to understand the poetic images, and the images reveal deeper meaning into those narratives. So we talked about things like power of the snake. We talked about light <coughs> and how light can be seen as blood, blessing and judgment. And then you actually see that in narratives. So today we're going to talk uh, a little differently. Um, what, what I w- want to say here is, is that a lot of the metaphors that the Bible uses are set up in Genesis 1 through 3. And if you know that, if you recognize that, then as you read, you'll always can reference yourself back to Genesis 1 through 3 to find those metaphors and how they start. So we're going to start with one again in Genesis 1 this morning. Right in the beginning there, um, you've got God and he separates the water and the waters above and the waters below. And then from those waters, he brings land out of those waters. So this morning, we're going to talk about the theology of large bodies of water. We're not going to talk about streams, rivers, wells, or precipitation from the sky. So no snow, no hail, rain, rain or etc. All of those have their own theological implications throughout the Bible. So I just want to make sure that we sort of have that, that understanding as we go forward. So then we'll jump to Genesis 7. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all of the fountains of the great deep burst forth. Burst forth. And the windows of the heavens were opened, and the rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. So the flood is a decreation event, because now we've had waters above and waters below, and they're coming back together, and they're covering the thing that came out of the waters, the land. Seems a little strange. So we're going to dive into some other verses to try to understand why is it that the waters are associated this way, and what's, what's it trying to say to us? So we go to Jonah, and Jonah has been thrown into the sea at this point. He is in the belly of the fish, and he's praying to the Lord. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me, Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. So here you see that the connection that Jonah sees with this is that being in the heart of the seas is to be in the grave or Sheol. And that, so there's something about being in, in the waters that has association with death. And so we'll jump to Ezekiel 26 to just continue to try to understand this a little bit more. For thus says the Lord God, when I make you a city laid waste like the, it, the cities that you are not inhabited, when I bring you up 
the deep over you and the great waters cover you. Then I will make you go down with those who go down to the pit, to the people of old. And I will make you dwell in the world below among ruins from of old with those who go down to the pit so that you will not be inhabited. But I will set beauty in the land of the living. So again, bringing the waters and the deep over is somehow connected to going down into the pit. And just continuing just to go forward, Second Peter 3 just so we're, not, we're sure it's, it's not something that just is in the Old Testament. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and by those means of these world that then existed, was deluged with water and perished. So water somehow represents death. And specifically, I'm talking again about large bodies of water. And going into the waters is to, to die or to go into the grave. So at the end of the flood, then you see that, the, that from the waters, the boat comes to rest on land that appears up out of the waters. A dove is hovering over the waters, just like at the beginning, you see the spirit in the very beginning of Genesis, you see the spirit hovering over the waters at the beginning. <clears throat> and Noah receives a blessing, very similar to the one that Adam receives. Be fruitful and multiply. Very, very similar. Maybe seems like a little bit of a stretch for you. Being brought up out of the waters is a sign of new creation. So we'll jump to 1 Peter 3. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. And with just a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Peter here is saying that he sees something about baptism, which isn't about washing, isn't about taking a bath, but is more, that somehow that's connected to how Noah comes through the waters. That just as Jesus is a new creation, that is the, as Noah comes through, that there's something about that that's a new creation. So coming through the waters is about new creation. Coming out of it. So again, here he's, he's making the point, you know, he uses through, and, you know, really, they were on, right? So the context of whether it's up or through or on doesn't seem to matter to the biblical authors more than you are coming out of the waters. That's the important thing, that you're coming out of it. And again, Peter understands baptism in light of death of an old creation and birth of a new creation. So we'll go to the next story, and Moses and the Ten Plagues. Now, I don't know about you, but... I haven't often thought about the ten plagues as a decreation event. And yet, if you start to think about it, the, the, the world when it's created sort of has three layers in the in sort of Jewish view. Water, land, and skies. Beginning of the, the, the plagues, the first one, water, is turned to blood. The land is completely destroyed because the animals and the crops are destroyed by hail and locusts. And the skies, instead of being brought light, as in you know, Genesis 1, now darkness is brought over the land and there is no light. Again, the creatures don't stay in their designated areas. The frogs aren't where they're supposed to be. They're just completely covering the land. There you have lice all over the land. You have flies that are covering the skies much beyond where they're supposed to be. Just to keep going farther, inside of instead of creating of the first human, you have the death of the firstborn humans. So you have this, this perspective that uh, I, we get, we're seeing 
another decreation event. So then you might ask the question, okay, so if in the flood we had a decreation event and a new creation, and now in Exodus we're seeing this decreation event, then is there a new creation event? Maybe another way to ask the question is, what comes up out of the waters? Anyone? Comes up out of the waters? Yes, the Israelites come up, out of the, the, uh, come up out of the waters. So then, that, that leads to another question, I guess, that we would ask is, uh, oh, I'm sorry, before we, Moses, so Moses leads the, the people through the Red Sea on dry land. He brings them up out of the waters. He's taking them to a new promised land. So if the people can represent land, what about the waters? Can the waters represent land? So we'll go to Psalms 89. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. So Rahab in this, in this one is, just to be clear, is not Rahab the prostitute. Um, this is Rahab that is the Jewish view of the, the Egyptian gods. For whatever reason, this is the word that they use for that. So in this case, you're seeing that the wave's rising and, and God is crushing the Egyptian gods and that that's the context here. And you continue to go into Psalm 65. You see, by awesome deeds, you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves, the tumult of the peoples. So that those who dwell at the end of the earth and are in awe of your signs, you make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. So something about, the, again, this connection between the roaring seas, the roaring waves, the tumult of the people, that there's this connection between people who are in conflict with God and that there's something about the waters that are also in conflict with him. <clears throat> so you go to Psalm 69. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. If you just stop right there, you go, oh, David's gotten himself into a bad spot here. He's, he's in a swamp. I am weary with crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for God. More in number of the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mightier those who would destroy me, those who, who, who attack me with lies. What I did not steal, I must, now, must I now restore? So you can see, see that, G that David's connecting this um, sinking into the waters and being overwhelmed by it as those who are at attacking him. Um, and so again, you go to Isaiah. Ah, the thunder of many peoples. They thunder like the thundering of the sea. Ah, the roar of nations. They roar like the roaring of mighty waters. The nations roar like the roaring of many waters. But he will rebuke them and they will flee far away. Chase like chaff on the mountains before the wind and whirling dust before the storm. Just more of this. The, the nations roar. They're like mighty waters. They're in conflict in some way with, with God and that he continues to, to subdue them. <clears throat> Psalm 74. Yet my God, my King, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the water. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him his food for the creatures of the wilderness. So something about the creatures that dwell in the sea are also in conflict with God, but yet he always is still the one that's ruling over them. He still always has that final authority over them. 
Isaiah 27, in that day, the Lord with his hard and great strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. So Jude, likes, Jude says it really, really uh, sort of nice for, for, um, for those of us more in the 21st century um, who don't like poetry as much. Um, <laughs> am I the only one <laughs> who's still struggling with poetry a little bit here? Um, uh, so so Jude, Jude says, but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, Wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. We lost it. Well, anyway, um, in, that, in that verse, you can see that there are actually quite a few metaphors. We're just focusing on just the one, but you can start to think about those metaphors and how do they flow through the Bible if this one does? How do the rest of these, you know, think about the uh, um, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Just something to think about. Um, so we, we get forward to this point. So where we've come at this point is the waters represent death. Going down into the waters is to go into Sheol or the grave. Being brought up or through the waters is a sign of new creation. Large bodies of water, from the biblical view, symbolize chaos in bringing disorder through decreation. Peoples can represent water and being opposed to God. Now, in the Jewish perspective, there are two people groups. There's the Jews and the Gentiles. And the Gentiles are the ones that are opposed to God. And so there are some uh, authors who actually refer to this as like the Gentile Sea. Um, just sort of... As we, you know, we move forward with this. So we've got this idea that people can represent water and that the Gentiles specifically are the ones that are opposed to God. But there are plenty of times we'll see through where the Jews are also opposed to God. So God has power over the sea, people, and death, all images that are represented in chaotic waters. So we have this confidence always that no matter the chaos that we go through, God has power of all of it. Always. So if we come back to the, the Exodus story and start to think about, okay, so what we've sort of wrapped our head around here, there's a great quote from Alistair Roberts. The waters are divided as they were divided on the second day. The sea is separated from the dry ground as it was on the second day. Israel is the dry ground taken up out of the sea, and the Egyptians are consigned to the abyss of the deep. The Egyptians and the Israelites, formerly mixed together, are going to be separated in Yahweh's act of new creation. Because we've gotten this idea, the fact that the Gentiles are the chaotic sea, and he's starting to bring the Israelites out of the chaotic sea. He's bringing them up. They're his new creation. So we have this, this flow. Decreation, creation. Decreation, new creation, flowing through. Because continue, humanity continues to bring chaos. Continues to bring chaos, so God continues to create order by acts of separating, so humans can flourish. And you see this repetition through the Bible. We're constantly hoping for someone who doesn't bring chaos. And yet, everyone that we see at some point gets it right, but at some point 
brings that chaos, continues to bring that chaos. So we start to, we're looking, we're looking, we're looking, we're hoping for something more, and we finally get to the New Testament, and here we see Jesus. So now we spend, in, in Mark, we have the focus of Mark, the first half of it, geographically, is all focused around the Sea of Galilee. So by the sea, Jesus calls his disciple in Mark 1, teaches and heals the crowds in Mark 2, 3, and 4. Jesus crosses the sea freely in Mark 4, 5, 6, 8, and he commands his disciples to also cross the sea in Mark 6. <clears throat> so with that, we have this continued perspective that the sea is the thing. So what do we want to do now is to wrap our head around the Sea of Galilee geographically. So here what we can see is um, sort of metal center there. You have the Lake of Galilee, or the Sea of Galilee, or Lake Tiberias, or Lake of Chinnereth, um, each one. And so on the western shore is the Jewish side, and on the eastern shore is the Gentile side. So as Jesus moves back and forth, we have to keep in mind the fact that he's moving often from Jewish territory into Gentile territory and back again. And I think that's really important if you have these ideas of how does water correspond in the Bible to chaos. So you go into, the, into Mark 4, Jesus sets off from the western shore and he heads to the eastern shore, to Gergesa, which you can sort of see there. They're not sure exactly where it is, but you know for sure it's on the eastern shore because we run into a herd of pigs. <laughs> so we know it's on the Gentile side, no matter whether we know exactly where it is. So Jesus heads across, he's sleeping, and the sea gets chaotic. Jesus is woken up, and what he doesn't do is he doesn't grab an oar and start smacking the water or yelling at it, or screaming at it, kicking at it. No, he stands up and he says, peace, be still. He brings peace into the situations. He doesn't bring more chaos into the situations. And then if you go forward, the very next story, we get to Jesus, and he's on now the Gentile side, and he heals a demon-possessed man. Now, if there is one group that you would expect to have the most opposition to God— you'd expect it to be the spiritual realm that stands against him, right? The demons. And so you see here, Jesus heals them. Now, on the way across from the west shore to the east shore, he went and it was through a storm. And so then when he gets to the side, he faces um, chaos in, in a man here. He heads back across and just, it's, a, you know, it's, it's just basically, he goes back across. It doesn't say anything else more about it. And when he gets to the other side, Jesus raises Jairus' uh, daughter from the dead. Death is also corresponded to water here. So we start to see this point to where Elizabeth Struthers Malbin puts it this way, <clears throat> that the manifestations of Jesus' power by the sea are to be interpreted in light of the manifestations of Jesus on the sea and vice versa. So these aren't just events that happen to be unconnected. They are woven and interconnected in a serious way, and we want to understand that. So you go forward to Mark 6. Jesus sends his disciples on to Bethsaida. Bethsaida, so they start on the western shore again, and he sends them to the Gentile side by themselves. And they don't make it. They're on their way. Jesus is praying. 
And, the Jesus, and it says, the disciples were making headway painfully. So Jesus looks out and sees this, and he walks on the water to them. And the water is like land to Jesus. He doesn't seem to care. He's walking on it one way or the other. It doesn't matter. Uh-uh. And Jesus calms the storm again. And they head back to the western shore. So they never make it to that eastern shore by themselves. It's only when, it's with, when he's with them that they, they make it through. And so he's, you know, he takes them back to that, that eastern shore, and they continue on. And so, you know, just, again, starting to think about what's with the boats, why this traveling across, what are we doing here? Um, another good quote from Alistair Roberts, Behind all of this emphasis on the sea and the fish lurks the boat as an entity that mediates between the sea and the land, a small piece of the land afloat on the sea. Peter Lightheart puts it a slightly different way. The fact that Jesus teaches from a boat shoved out in the sea perhaps gives us an image of the church. The church is a little ark, a little bit of Israel, tossed about on the sea of nations. But there's no danger because the Lord of the church walks on the sea as on dry land. So that's our, always our confidence, is that always we have the Lord who is the one who has full power over all chaos in all its forms. And so Connie talked to us on June 22nd about unhooking our boat and setting sail, and I think this is right on. We, we are called to go out into the chaos, to set sail into that chaos, knowing that with him we cannot fail. So we still want to think about this a little bit more because Jesus starts to face some pretty challenging situations as he continues forward. And so there's a, there's a part in Matthew 12 where the scribes come and ask him a question. They say, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seek for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, someone thing greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with his generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So there's a couple things to think through here. One is, Jesus is connecting his death in the grave to the same type of thing that we've been talking about, which is he's going to be in the waters for three days and three nights. And also, you see here that the Gentiles are the ones who, in, when you look at some of these Old Testament ones, are the ones who respond better than the Jews to the, to the wisdom that, is, that God really reveals. When Jonah goes to Nineveh, they respond and convert. You know, they're not chaotic. It's the opposite effect. It, it's, you know, you, it's almost, it's supposed to be a surprise because that's, that's the case. It's a surprise that the Jews who are supposed to be the ones in line aren't the ones. And here we see the Gentiles getting in line and saying, yeah, we're, we're aligning with this. And the same thing with the Queen of the South. Solomon's wisdom is so great that she comes up and she, she meets with him. And again, we're seeing this. The Gentiles see the wisdom and they're not always the chaotic waters in the way we expect them to be. But yet, Jesus if he's in the, the belly of the great fish and he's in the waters, then he has to go through those waters. And so Jesus goes through, his wa- through the waters in multiple ways. One, right, so he faces a chaotic situation. He goes through death and he comes out the other side. And he comes out the other side, a new creation. 
So we get to see, again, a decreation event and a new creation event. And again, this is our confidence, is that we used to be Gentiles, and we are pulled out of the waters, and we are now also new creations. And so that's an aspect of what we're seeing with baptism, is, is that we are being metaphorically pulled from the chaos, and now we're pulled back onto the chaos. So we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. And because he dwells in you, you can have that same confidence. You get to Acts, and you get to see Peter, who tried to walk on the water before, tried to cross to the Gentile side and couldn't. But now he's full of the Holy Spirit. And when he gets called to the Gentiles, he goes. And he makes it. And you get to see amazing things happen. And then you go to the story of Paul. And Paul is called to the Gentiles. And finally, he's called to, to testify before the Roman emperor. And off he sets, along, along with many, multiple trials along the way. But he's on his way, and he's in a boat. And on that boat, the waters become very chaotic to the point where they shipwreck. And they come safely through, as Acts 27 talks about. And so it was through, it was that all went brought safely to land. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. And then Acts 28, 3 to 5, when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer, though he's escaped from the sea, Justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. So he comes through the waters, and <laughs> he, he, he's starting to live just as we see Jesus, see Jesus living, which is that even the physical world doesn't respond the way we would expect it to to these new creations. And I would challenge us that that is something we need to start to think about, is that as new creations, do we engage with this type of thing? Do we see the fact that the, the natural world defines how we respond? Or do we realize that we're much more than that? We're much more than that. So Paul comes through the chaotic sea. So whether you come through the chaotic sea or you are overcome by the chaotic sea, our final hope comes to Revelation. And since we started in Gen Genesis, we might as well end in Revelation. <coughs> Just, you know, cover the whole thing, right? All the way through. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Going to Revelation 21.1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now, if you haven't tracked up to this point and you don't understand what waters are, you look at this point and go, darn it, there's no snorkeling and there's no surfing in heaven. Man! But if you've tracked with this at this point, you're like, hallelujah! The chaos has been overcome. And so we can read Alistair Roberts' quote, the gospel brings an overcoming of the opposition between land and the sea. The confidence is that the kingdom message is that God has conquered and rules over all, even the chaos. So, my challenge to you today is this. It's time to set sail. If you haven't, if you already have, you have been brought out of the waters. You are a new creation. No matter the chaotic 
the waters you happen to be in, bring order, just as you see Jesus, uh, God bringing order in, or, in Genesis 1, where he starts to order the creation, where he's separating the waters, and then he brings the land out of the waters. He's ordering. And the same thing here, then you see Jesus. He brings peace. But that may even come through suffering, just as Jesus did, as Peter did, as Paul did. We may suffer. It's expected. And that we are to bring bring peace, order through those things anyways. Our final hope is this, secure in the knowledge of a gracious provider who will overcome all chaos. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you today that you are Lord of all the chaos and that you have made us new creations and brought us into your, your light. Help us as we go out today to set sail and to, to trust in you, in your name. Amen.